and welcome to the Nourishing Soulfully podcast. I'm your host Peter and I'm a certified intuitive eating pro skills facilitator and an eating psychology coach. I'm a qualified trauma-informed practitioner and well-being coach and what all of this means is that I support wonderful souls to heal their relationship with food, their body and themselves. And this week we are delving into a workshop I have delivered in various different settings, um, in healthcare settings, in education settings, um, in social care settings for staff members around the topic of um, dieting and the dangers of dieting on mental health and well-being. I hope you find this workshop really useful. I would love to hear your feedback on it. It is quite information dense so I definitely recommend having a listen as you're on a walk or doing something that um, isn't all too taxing. There's a lot of information to take in but I think it's really important information and I think that um, the more people that know about it the better. If you have any questions about anything that I share in this workshop or around intuitive eating, self-compassion and kindness please do pop an email over to peter, that's P-E-T-A, at nourishingsoulfully.com. As always, be gentle, be kind. You're doing the best you can, always. Sending lots of love your way. Let's dive into the workshop. Hello and welcome to this Nourishing Soulfully workshop. The dangers of dieting and its effects on mental health and well-being. My name is Peter Coote and I am an intuitive eating coach as well as a self-kindness coach. I have trained with Evelyn Triboli um, who created intuitive eating. I'm also trauma-informed, trained and um, a life coach too. So let's delve into this workshop. A researcher named John Forate said in his book, Living Without Dieting, that dieting is like holding your breath. At some point, you have to breathe. This gives us a real insight into the effects dieting can have on our own mental health. I'd like you to think about what affects our weight. So if you pause this video now, and you grab a pen and paper and just write down a few ideas. What do you feel affects our weight? There are over 100 factors, including but not limited to genetics, which explains 60 to 70% of the differences in people, family history, family culture and routine, socioeconomic status, where we live, our activity levels, our race and ethnicity, age, sex, where we work, our culture, our sleep, medical conditions, our community, among many, many other things. And I think that's really, really important because diet culture would have us believe that there are only two things which affect our weight, food intake and exercise. Studies have shown that our body shape is 80% determined by our genes alone. And according to Professor Tim Spector, a fifth of the UK population are on some form of diet at any one time. That's 13,330,000 people. Yet waistlines continue to expand by an inch every decade. 
And today we're going to be looking at why diets don't work and how detrimental dieting can be for our mental health and well-being. So this same professor, Tim Spector, ran a really, really interesting study um, with identical twins who wished to lose weight. He selected 12 sets of identical female twins. Most people would kind of predict that the twin who had the most willpower to stay on their diet would lose the most weight. But over the course of 20 years of following the twins, this was not the case. The twins, on average, throughout the 20 years, weighed the same. And a similar study ran with twins who started off at the same weight at the age of 16. By the time they um, turned 25, the twin who had dieted weighed on average 1.5 kilos more than the twin who hadn't. So that's about a bag and a half of sugar more than the twin who hadn't dieted. Um, and so the study was called Does Dieting Make You Fat? And it was by Pietlenin. Um J. Obbs, um, and it was run in 2012 in March. Um, and it looked at 4,129 individual twins over 25 years. So it's not this kind of thing of like, ah, oh, we'll just we'll just have a little look. No, they really, really delved into this and they found that on average, the twin who had dieted weighed more than the twin who hadn't. So a study of um, 500 adopted children compared their weight with their adopted parents and their biological parents. And really, really interestingly, you know, if weight is largely dictated by food and exercise um, and environment, as we're led to believe, the children's weight would be similar to that of the adopted parents' weight, but it wasn't. In fact, researchers found that the children's weight correlated strongly with the weight of their biological parents and not at all with the weight of their adoptive parents. You can influence your weight, but really only within your set weight range. When we adapt, when we diet, sorry, our bodies adapt. The body does what it has to, what it's evolved to do keep us alive so biological changes transpire so that our body can hold on to and increase fat stores and the brain's reward mechanism for food also changes as we kind of change our diet dieting creates a real sense of control we feel really motivated like we're getting our life on track and feel as if we're a better person for dieting we may lose some weight in the first week or so, and we often hear it called water weight, which is where we deplete our glycogen stores. So glycogen is stored in the liver and the muscles. And when we deplete those stores, when those flu blood sugar levels get low, we have quick, easy access to, to that source of glucose. Glycogen, though, attracts a lot of water, which is stored along with it. And when we diet, when we don't eat for long periods of time, such as when we sleep or exercise intensely, glycogen is burned to help keep our blood sugar levels from falling too low. So when we diet, we can end up using some of those stores and all of the water which goes along with it. It gives us a boost as we feel that we're doing really well on our diet so far. And we then have a negative calorie balance where we burn more than we eat and start to break down protein from muscles and fat. So we lose a bit more weight. But at this point, our body realizes that food is a shortage. Our survival mechanisms kick in. 
we'll get hungrier. Other foods start to sound really appetizing, even things like stale cake. Neurotransmitters and hormones are triggered and they're telling our brain to tell us to eat. This causes a lot of cravings and restriction causes cravings as it is. So it's a double whammy. It's at this point that many of us fall off the bandwagon. Sometimes we don't though, and after a short while, we'll, we'll notice that our weight kind of plateaus. And this is due to our body making adjustments to compensate for the lack of fuel we're giving it. Metabolic processes slow down and our body gets really, really good at extracting every single calorie from food and putting it to good use. Our fat stores increase because our body has received the message that there is a shortage of food and it doesn't know that there is actually food and we're choosing not to eat it. The body will do whatever it has to do to hold onto that weight and those fat stores for as long as possible in this mode. And restricting food causes a huge amount of stress on top of all of the other kind of day-to-day -day stress we feel. So eventually we say, that's it, I'm done. And in a moment of weakness, we eat everything in sight. We feel like a failure. We feel really guilty and greedy and we vow to start again on Monday. We think we have failed. Except we haven't. We haven't failed at anything. Dieting has failed us. This is the continual diet cycle. The type of diet comes and goes, but the premise is the same. We restrict, we plateau, something sends us over the edge, we have a blowout and vow to start again on Monday. Our motivation changes. Maybe we see something in a magazine or on TV that triggers the thought that we need to change the way our body looks. Maybe it's a wedding coming up or a summer holiday or January. Weight cycling, however, is really detrimental to our health and it's associated with a higher mortality weight. Um, gallstone attacks, loss of muscle tissue, high blood pressure, chronic inflammation, disordered eating, lower self-esteem and self-worth and more emotional distress. We can look at disordered eating on a spectrum. All disordered eating involves at least one behaviour of an eating disorder, but not all disordered eating leads to eating disorders. Dieting also contributes to long-term weight gain and visceral adipose tissue, which is the type of fat that accumulates in the abdomen associated with type 2 diabetes, heart disease, breast cancer, colorectal cancer and Alzheimer's. So that's the kind of tissue as well that kind of accumulates around our vital organs that on someone who we would label as skinny or thin, we wouldn't be able to see that fat around those vital organs. And that's really, really important to remember. I think diet culture has given us this idea that we can see if a person has fat around those organs and it is detrimental towards their health, but we can't. The fat around our body on, on like the outer fat that we kind of see that isn't so detrimental to our health. Richard Samba, um, who is the financial chairman for Weight Watchers, likened dieting to playing the lottery. And he said, if you don't win, you play a game. Maybe you'll win a second time. Interestingly, this man was also asked why the business could be so successful when only 16% of customers maintained the weight they lost. And his reply was, it's successful because the other 84% have to come back and do it again. That's where the business comes from. 
According to Weight Watchers, the average member enrolls on four separate program cycles, but they say nothing about how well this works. And from what I now know, I doubt that it's worked at all long term. We all have a set weight range that we naturally kind of return to. And as our body adapts to any changes, it works to return us to within that weight range. And I would be inclined to suggest that the 16% um, who maintained the weight they lost, a huge majority of them returned to their set weight range. Commercial diet companies such as Weight Watchers and Nutrisystem claim they don't collect long-term data on the effectiveness of their diets, which kind of begs the question, can't they? Or are they just not willing to? Tracy Mann is a researcher in willpower and dieting. And Tracy looked into why we don't have much data on how well diets work. In her book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, Tracy explains that in the 1990s, a panel was created by the Federal Trade Commission to create guidelines for advertising weight loss products. And as I'm sure you can probably imagine, this panel included representatives from many of the commercial diets around at the time. So they were deciding what the guidelines would be. And so the people on that panel were representatives of dieting companies. So the panel decided not to offer data in the efficiency of diets in the short term or long term. And they didn't even include how many people had actually completed them because, and I quote, dieters will be discouraged if they are provided with realistic outcome data. 30 years on, diet companies still don't have to share this information in marketing. In a meta-analysis by Anderson, JW and co of 29 weight loss studies, it was found that participants regained on average 77% of the weight they initially lost after five years. And we now know that one of the main constant indicators of weight gain is a previous weight loss. Tracy Mann once shared that nearly every study on self-control she has ever conducted or studied has demonstrated the reasons why self-control often fails us. She has proven that there are so many variables that can affect self-control and they all fall into one category. Circumstances. Are you stressed? Are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? Have you been controlling yourself in other areas all day and now you're tired? Willpower is a limited resource, which is why diets don't work. We can't muster up endless amounts of willpower. It doesn't work like that. And a study was created to test this theory where people put in a room with a um, plate of radishes and a plate of freshly baked cookies still warm from the oven. So the participants were told that they were taking part in a study around taste perception and that they had been assigned to taste radishes. They were left alone and they, of course, exercised enough self-control to not taste a cookie as it was only for a very short amount of time. The participants were then given a puzzle to solve and it was made to look really simple, but it was actually really difficult. The group that had to resist the cookies 
weren't able to exercise the same amount of willpower on figuring out the puzzle as the group who didn't have to resist cookies at all. They'd already used up a huge portion of their willpower. Even making choices depletes our ability to use self-control as we wish to. Just think how many choices we have to make in a day. Decisions and choices such as when to leave the house to go to work, what clothes we wear that day, what to have for breakfast, what route to work we go, if we grab our bag and get out of the car or get out of the car and then grab our bag. What decisions can you think of that you make every single day? It's estimated that the average adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. So whilst we can train things like muscles to work more efficiently, for some reason, we can't amplify how much willpower we have. We are simply not made to willfully resist food or restrict it for that matter. And sometimes we need to delve into this further and understand why. Because diets often talk about how we just need to use our self-control or willpower to gain results when that just scientifically is not possible. Dr. Tracy Mann has a really informative and easy to digest chapter on willpower um, in their book, Secrets from the Eating Lab. So if you are interested in that, I'd highly recommend grabbing a copy and having a read. So why do we diet? Whatever our surface-based reason for wanting to diet is, whether it's get healthy or get skinny or get strong, if we dig a little deeper, if we ask why, why do we want to get fit? Why do we want to get thin? We find the answer is, I want to like myself. I want to feel like I've achieved something. I want to feel worth. I want to feel deserving. I want people to like me, to love me. I want to be good enough. And that's really at the crux of it, isn't it? I want to be good enough. This is a message which is, it just comes up time and time again that we kind of unpick and, and dig around and each time we come back to, I just want to be good enough. We usually fall into the lottery trap of when I get skinny or when I get thin or when I get healthy or when I get fit, I will do X, Y and Z. And this is kind of fed to us over and over again regarding how we look and equating it to how much we are worth, equating our success to it, to, our, to how our life will pan out, etc. And I'm going to drop a truth bomb on you right now. Your appearance is the least important thing about you. I'm going to repeat that. Your appearance is the least important thing about you. I'd like you to think of the people you admire, the people you love your friends, your family, your co-workers, people you aspire to be like. What are their values? Why do you love them? Why do you like them? Why do you want to be like them? I'm telling you now, you don't love anyone solely based on their appearance. And actually, it's got nothing to do with why you appreciate them and why you love them. Your appearance is the least important thing about you. By the time a girl reaches the age of 17, she has received 250,000 messages telling her how she should look. And I mean, this data now, it's pretty old. We're, we're talking a couple of years old, which I know doesn't seem very old in the grand scheme of things, but considering um, the pandemic in 2019, 2020, um, 2021 kind of thing, those three years, 
of immense change to how young people use um, technology and how much more they're using it, you know, I'm, I would imagine that that number is probably double. Think about the media that you were um, exposed to as a child. So from an early age, you were told that thin and beautiful equals successful. And this is what we now call diet culture. And as Dr. Laura Thomas explains in her book, Just Eat It, it demands thinness no matter what the cost on our mental or physical health. And it's a simple way of thinking about it, is the culture that upholds the thin ideal as the standard of beauty. Sometimes it's obvious, an advert for a slimming club. Sometimes it's more insidious, an absence of body diversity in the media, a diet masquerading as a healthy lifestyle, even the war on obesity. I took a look at the Women's Health UK website this weekend. And here are just two of the subtle headlines messages we receive regarding our weight and encouraging us to diet. How to lose belly fat safely and sustainably and how to work out how many calories your body needs. Now, when it comes to belly fat, we have a biological need for belly fat. It is there to protect our reproductive organs. It's very, very important and we can't live without it. How to work out how many calories your body needs. Even scientists can't work out the exact calorie intake required for your body because it is dependent on activity levels, your sex, race, ethnicity, what you ate yesterday, the time of year for those who menstruate, where they are in their cycle. And really interestingly enough, um, I spoke to a researcher in dietetics a couple of weeks ago who shared with me that, you know, companies, lots of organizations at the moment, lots of diet companies are pushing the fact that they have got the formula um, where they can now take a blood test and advise you exactly what diet um, you, sh you need to be eating for your body to be at kind of its very best, its optimum health. And she said to me, you know, that they're, they're putting this out all over the place um, and they're promising this, they're selling it even. But in reality... The technology to do this, the knowledge, the wisdom behind it is still 15 to 20 years away at least. And I was really surprised about that. I was like, wow, that is still such a long time. She was like, we, were, we are nowhere near ready to be able to accurately tell someone by taking a blood test what food, what diet to follow. But guess what? Our body is really, really good at efficiently telling us how much we need to eat with hunger and fullness cues, ensuring we do eat, and then using that food to fuel our body and keep it running well at optimum health. In her book, um, The Body Positive Power by Megan Crabb, she describes diet culture as it is so deeply ingrained in us that we barely even notice it's there. It's just the way things are nothing to be questioned diet culture is why we hate our bodies not because we're hideously flawed and not because of some unchanging truth about what it means to be beautiful but because we have been taught to we have been taught to hate our bodies by the culture we live in a culture that has convinced over half of us that shrinking ourselves is worthwhile and, ne and a necessary pursuit how diet culture has been created is really simple People realise that a lot of money can be made from teaching us that our bodies are a problem and selling us the solution. We're taught that we'll be happy once we lose weight and that and this is where that kind of lottery 
thinking comes from. I'll do this once I'm size X or I'll, I'll do this once I've lost this amount of weight. So how do we know if we're eating healthy or if it's a diet? Are we restricting in order to achieve weight loss or alter body shape or size? Are there rules? Are there points to count? Are there guilt-free foods? Is there a plan to follow? Does something have to be counted such as calories or macros? Can we mess up? When we diet, our metabolism slows down. We overeat and we binge eat, which is a normal reaction from our body to starvation. We follow rules that someone has set for us whom we have never met. How can this stranger know our body better than we do? Body sensation is a direct experience. We can't do it for someone else. In the diet myth, um, Tim explains that the amount of calories we absorb depends on our rate of digestion. Absorption, the microbes in our gut and size of large intestine. We are all so unique that it can't be something based on the average. What about calorie labels? So if if we're doing a diet with which counts calories, what about the labels on, on food? And I imagine you're thinking, what about them? Well, foods like almonds usually contain a 30% overestimation of calories. Manufacturers are legally allowed an error rate of 20% on packets. Processed frozen foods underestimate calories by about 70% and high fiber products by about 30%. So even if counting calories worked, we wouldn't be able to do this successfully because we aren't given the correct information on the packets. But it doesn't work. Even if we were, it doesn't work. The thing is, diet speaks to us from the authoritarian parental voice. And if we look at the psychology around these ego states, when something comes from that authoritarian parental place, our childlike instinct is to rebel. So how does dieting affect our mental health and well-being? Research shows that dieting is a risk factor for developing all eating disorders. Progression from what we would consider normal dieting to an eating disorder in just two years is as high as 10%. And um, anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. When I speak about dieting, I'm also including the food rules we have. Just because we're not on an actual diet doesn't mean that our food rules don't impact our mental health. Having cheat days, having to be good because we ate too much at the weekend, not eating sweet foods unless it's a special occasion, believing that bread is bad for us. Can you name any other food rules that you've followed in the past? I really encourage you to pause now and note down some of those food rules. I'm also going to um, attach down below this video um, a worksheet that you can do on how dieting has affected you personally in the past. So when we focus on weight loss, this sabotages our ability to reconnect with our body um, and with the body's intuitive eating signals. And when we focus on weight, it, it places attention on external measures for eating, such as the portions of foods, macros, calories, rather than connecting with internal um, cues. So studies have shown that dieting is linked to depression, lowered self-esteem, increased stress, disordered eating and eating disorders, as well as increased food and body preoccupation and dissatisfaction. And I think we can all kind of see how that happens, can't we? As Ruby Tander explains in the book Eat Up, eating food that you enjoy in a context that's relaxed and pleasurable is a step towards more efficient digestion and better health. 
Dietitian Ellen Satter has a quote on the front page of her website. When the joy goes out of eating, nutrition suffers. And it's a thought that captures what should be a self-evident truth of eating, that it does us good to feel good. So what about sugar? Like the evil of all evils at the moment. Our brain is very dependent on sugar for its main source of energy, and it requires 20% of the body's total supply to function properly. That was Katie in the background. And a lot of that sugar comes from carbohydrates as well. So this is why people often feel really awful when on low-carb diets. If the low-carb diet worked, then we would see increased average weights in countries eating the most carbs. So Japan is the country with the highest consumption of white rice, yet the lowest obesity rate. The official Japanese food guide recommends five to six vegetable dishes a day and five to seven grain dishes per day. Think back to when you felt you had failed at a diet. How did that make you feel? How was your self-worth and self-confidence impacted? Could this have then had an effect on decisions you made, how you treated yourself, what you believed you could and couldn't achieve and do? I wish I had time to go into this today and I really urge you to read more into weight linked with health via the books and resources I will share um, below. Our health isn't impacted solely by what we eat and it's important that we start to really become aware of this. As Dr. Joshua Woolrich shares in his book, Food Isn't Medicine, health and nutrition are inherently socioeconomic issues and ones of privilege. I am privileged to have the time to cook. I am privileged to be able to afford fresh fruit and vegetables and own a fridge to be able to keep food from rotting too quickly. I am privileged to have the time, physical and mental capacity to exercise. If we ignore this, health becomes a blame game. The personal responsibility message regarding weight and health couldn't be further from the truth. The vast majority of our health is influenced by things we have little control over. Socio, social, social determinants of health are responsible for around 70% of the length and quality of our lives. Healthcare access and quality of healthcare education access, um, so, like quality of education as well, social and community context, economic stability and neighbourhood and environment. This belief that people can just lift themselves out of poverty if they try hard enough should not be doing the rounds any longer. In the UK, it can take five generations for the child of a poor family to get to a position where they're earning the national average income. Food inequality is a huge problem and this message that those who are overweight just need to have more willpower is so very damaging. 10% of UK households would have to spend 78% of their income, their disposable income on food just to meet England's public health eat well guide recommendations. Eating a nutritious diet is a privilege and over 10 million people in the UK live in areas of food insecurity where poverty, poor public transport and lack of big supermarkets severely limits access to affordable fresh fruit and veg. 1 million people in the UK are without a fridge, 2 million without a cooker and 3 million without a freezer. Access to fruit and vegetables, your 5 or 7 or 12 a day, which has been shown can improve health, becomes irrelevant if you can't store them. The average body weight is, a, is far higher for those living in those deprived areas in the UK. Poverty, therefore, plays a part in influencing body size and the accusation that people just need to eat less 
it becomes really hard to justify. But what about BMI? This indicator of health in relation to our body mass. Well, 200 years ago, Adolf Quetelet created a way of measuring what was considered to be an ideal weight by using the height and weight of a group of Western European men. It was designed to measure average weight at a population level. I'm not sure how the average weight of one ethnic group 200 years ago is meant to determine the average weight 200 years later of all genders, races and ethnicities. But there we go. This, message, this measurement had nothing to do with health, though. It was only when American insurance companies needed to have a way of determining how much to charge for insurance that it began to have links with health. So they took this calculation on to justify higher insurance quotes. So in 1985, BMI was officially approved as the measure to use with the labels of 27.8 for men and 27.3 for women. Why those particular values? They decided that a weight increase of 20% higher than desirable would work. No evidence-based science was used to determine this. 10 years later, in 1995, a board of professionals convinced the WHO to lower the cutoffs for both men and women to 25, labeling them as overweight and adding a new category, obese. Overnight, millions of people found themselves over overweight when the day before they had been considered ideal weight and unfortunately all of the members of the board of professionals who convinced the WHO to lower the cutoffs ran weight loss clinics and received the majority of their funding from the only two pharmaceutical companies that made weight loss drugs at the time. The research presented to the WHO actually found that health was affected most with a BMI of 40 meaning the values should have been raised not lowered but that wouldn't benefit the growing weight loss industry, which is now worth $71 billion. So if dieting is awful, but we're completely and utterly caught up in it all and all of these rules, what can we do? Well, this is where relearning how to eat intuitively comes in. What is intuitive eating? Intuitive eating is a compassionate self-care framework that treats all bodies with dignity and respect. It's all about trust, trusting your body to send signals of hunger, fullness, taste, texture, etc. We've all done it before. It's how we first learned to eat. We would cry as babies when hungry to be fed and we honoured our hunger signals and when full we stopped eating. We'd pull away from the milk not wanting more. Our hunger and fullness cues began to get disrupted when well-meaning adults in our lives told us to eat just a bit more. No, we couldn't have a snack now. Tea would be ready soon and we'd spoil it. It's through no fault of the adult. They were doing what they felt was the very best at the time, caring and looking after their child. But it's where that intuition begins to become affected. Intuitive eating is really compassionate, as I said before. A study by Talke and Wilcox in 2006 of 350 college students found that eating for physical rather than emotional reasons um, and re reliance on internal hunger and fullness cues, determining when and how much to eat, uniquely contribute to psychological well-being. This includes optimism, resilience, um, recovery from adversity, unconditional self-regard, proactive coping and social problem solving. Eating intuitively relies on interceptive awareness, and this is our awareness of signals our body sends us, such as needing to go for a wee. I'd 
like you to take a moment to find your pulse. Okay? So just take a moment, find your pulse. Now I'd like you to focus on that just for a moment or two. And now let go of your wrist and place your hands on your knees or on the table in front of you or wherever you are. I'd like you to try and detect or feel your heartbeat now without physically trying to find it as you did before. And some of you may be able to do this and some may not. But this is interceptive awareness. And when we work on increasing the awareness, we tune in better to our body and to our hunger and fullness cues. So it's really interesting as we get better at tuning in, we actually get better at noticing that that heartbeat. And I likened it to needing a wee. You, your body sends you a signal, for most of us anyway. And we wouldn't say, oh God, I can't need another wee. I only went half an hour ago, I'm not going again. We'd go, wouldn't we, if we really needed to. But we do this with food. We, we're like, no, I only ate half an hour ago. I'm not eating again. Interceptive awareness helps us to tune in better to our hunger and fullness cues, which means we don't eat when we're really hungry. Um, and then if we're not honoring them, we don't. And then we it causes us to overeat and we also get overly full and we feel really uncomfortable. So this helps us to feel more uncomfortable. When people dislike or hate their body, they have a hard time listening to messages from their body, which interferes with interoceptive awareness. And this is why self-kindness and self-compassion are so, so important here. When working with adult clients, I usually find that after a while, their weight reaches a place where their body functions best at, a place of well-being. And when we look back at food diaries together and compare to the first food diary, we usually see they've ended up eating less with a wider variety of fruits and vegetables due to honouring hunger and fullness cues. I found that self-kindness comes hand in hand with this when we're kind and compassionate towards ourselves, when we understand our emotional eating and we empower ourselves to, at times, find different alternatives that aren't food, which better soothe those emotions long term. We make better choices for our health. So those intuitive eating principles are as follows. Reject the diet mentality. So this is all about understanding why diets don't work in terms of weight loss and delving into and understanding your own experiences of dieting and recognizing diet mentality in you. So rules and justification. If I do this, then I can have this. And this is what I do a lot of work with clients around. Um, I'm a certified eating psychology coach as well. So I'm trying to help clients understand their behaviors around food and unpick beliefs and rules and bargaining that they might find they do with food. Principle two is honour your hunger. So diet culture can teach us to have a coffee or a drink a glass of water or brush our teeth or even go to bed early um, if we're feeling hungry. Do any of those ring a bell? Which ones have you found um, that you've tried in the past? This affects our body's natural hunger cues and so they become less reliable and unfortunately over time when we do this our body will stop sending the signals as we aren't responding. We can often ignore hunger signals such as not being able to focus or a dull headache or low energy or feeling hangry or anxious, stomach rumbling, feeling weak and when we tune into our hunger signals we're better able to listen to our body and trust our body. The third principle is all about making peace with food. It's about giving ourselves unconditional permission to eat. And this doesn't mean that you'll eat everything and anything in sight. You really won't. We think we will. Um, but after a few days, we really, truly don't. 
when we tell ourselves we can't or shouldn't have a particular food, it can lead to intense um, feelings of deprivation that build into uncontrollable cravings and often binging. Using neutral language around food is really important here, letting go of labels like unhealthy and healthy, good or bad, and changing them to exactly what they are, say bread, cheese, chocolate, apple. Number four is challenge the food police, and this comes down to challenging good and bad foods and the idea of the perfect diet that will work for you. Number five is discover the satisfaction factor. Creating enjoyment around food, trying new meals and snacks and experimenting with food. It's about learning which foods satisfy you the most and make you feel your best self. And not every meal and snack will be perfect, but it's about bringing in that satisfaction factor as often as possible. Feel your fullness is number six. And this is about honouring fullness. Um, we must trust our body and honour what we fancy eating. And we then check in throughout eating to check how full we are, stopping when we're satisfied and learning not to eat to an uncomfortable fullness. Number seven is all about coping with your emotions with kindness. So it's understanding why we stress eat and engage in emotional eating with kindness and acknowledging that sometimes we have nothing available to us but food to soothe us. Sometimes, though, there are other things which will greater soothe us more long term. And this is something I often delve into, um, into with clients around self-kindness, that emotional eating and how we can be kinder to ourselves. Food is always an option, but as is something like journaling or speaking to a friend or taking a break. Eight is respect your body. So it's near impossible to reject the diet mentality if we are unrealistic and overly critical of our body shape or size. And this is why I share lots of content on stories around what normal bodies look like, because goodness me, if we believe the media, we'd think that women don't have cellulite. All women do. It's a biological necessity. We think no one wobbles. The majority of us do too. And this and that kind of having a flat stomach is the be all and end all of everything. The list goes on and on and on. Number nine is feel movement, feel the difference. So it's all about moving our body in a way that feels good, which doesn't revolve around punishment or an intention to change the body or being active, trying out different movements and resting when we need to. And finally, principle 10 is honour your health with gentle nutrition. Now, this is the one principle we leave until last. All of the other principles can be done in any order. And when I'm working with clients, we we go in the order which feels best for them. Um, and on group programmes, we go in the order that it's written down in just because um, that's kind of the most accessible one for everyone to work through. But number 10 is always last. Um, and this is about making food choices that honour our health, what we feel like eating and make us feel good. One meal or snack can't cause a nutrient deficiency or for us to put on or lose weight. It's our behaviour towards what we eat consistently over time that matters. And what's really important here is that it's gentle nutrition. This is why we leave it till last. If we were to kind of bring in this um, somewhere in the beginning, we'd, we'd turn it into a diet. And intuitive eating isn't a diet. There aren't rules. There are these kind of guiding principles, but they're not um, black and white rules by any means. I will send, well, I'll pop a list of um, recommendations for books and podcasts and people to follow um, online on the subject below. I hope that this has opened your mind up to the possibility that maybe the answer isn't dieting. Maybe the answer is unpicking diet culture from your life and honoring your hunger and fullness cues and allowing yourself to stress eat if there is nothing else available to which will make you feel better to you to take foods off pedestals and the bandless, and to take time to eat and enjoy meals and snacks to be kinder to yourself and to trust your body.
this doesn't happen overnight. I work with clients intensely um, and it takes time and energy to alter these behaviours. We're undoing a lifetime of food rules and beliefs, so I really do encourage you to research this further if this interests you. Question food rules and beliefs out there that people throw at you. Be kind to yourself and don't expect to just be able to not diet overnight. Be gentle and be kind. Remember, you're doing the best you can always. And if you have any questions, please feel free to pop an email over. The email is at the bottom of the screen. It's peter at nourishingsoulfully.com. Sending lots of love your way. Bye-bye.